Isaiah 64. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you and we bless you for the privilege of opening your word and of being able to read it and understand it according to your will and purpose. And by your Spirit, Lord, we pray that you will grant us wisdom and understanding of this passage tonight. Father, purify our hearts and our minds so that everything that we read, everything that we hear, will be, Lord God, clear and that your word will be rightly divided. I pray, Father, that you will strengthen us in our wisdom and understanding of your word. And that in that strength, it will help us to live and to move and to have our being in Christ and in your word and in your truth and in your righteousness and in your goodness and in godliness. May, Lord, we serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We desire this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. Let's read that. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, You came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. You know, there has has not been a generation of believers in all the history of man, whether before or after the cross, that hasn't felt the need for divine intervention and not expressed it without a passionate heart cry of prayer. Not one generation of believers. I have to make that clear. This particular prayer that we find here in chapter 64 was begun actually in the previous chapter as the prophet Isaiah pleads on behalf of the people who look back to realize that they had backslidden as a nation and needed to call on God for help. You can look at that in in verses 15 through 19 of, of chapter 63. That prayer continues through this chapter, chapter 64, a prayer that many a commentator has called one of the greatest revival prayers found in Scripture. The first request in this particular prayer is for the Lord to come in His power and in His glory, which, by the way, is applicable not only for a near fulfillment, but more importantly, a far fulfillment as the hearts of the people of Israel in the last days, suffering and will suffer under the beast and the Antichrist, cry out to their God to come down on their behalf. Now certainly throughout uh, generations, God's people have cried out to Him in their times of trouble, in their times of need, and uh, have asked for that very thing, for God to come and to show Himself strong for them against their enemies. But listen to verse 1, it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. The prayer is continuing with this plea. The plea is this, Lord, tear the heavens open. That's what it means to rend the heavens. Tear the heavens open, burst through them, and come down to execute judgment. As I mentioned before, to the people, the Lord seemed far away. I mentioned this last week. When they say, look down from heaven, they're saying, you know, Lord, you've, you've left us. You've gone away from us. And so to the people, the Lord seemed far away, almost out of reach, since He had withdrawn Himself from their midst due to their disobedience and their rebellion. 
And they were in desperate need of a demonstration of God's awesome power that had been so evident before for the children of Israel. All the way back to the very nearly the beginning of the history of the children of Israel. Uh, and then so evident on Mount Sinai, the mount where Moses would receive the law from God. The people waiting for Moses to receive the law. The people waiting for Moses to come down from this mountain. And in Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19, we're told that it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and there were lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Uh, This is an awesome scene. This is an awesome experience. And this is something that remained with them as their history. It remained with them as their story, as their connection to God and His law. And always they would be reminded when, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they went to the mount called Sinai, God made Himself known. You see, this is what's happening here. God made Himself known to Moses. God made Himself known to the children of Israel. And so in remembrance of these things, Israel now needs the Lord to make His name known in a powerful way to those who would defy and oppose Him. The plea made clear in the next two verses of our text. We mentioned smoke and fire, and you'll notice in Isaiah 64, verses 2 and 3, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. Think about that thought just for a moment. You know, when you see a brush fire out in the, out in the desert or out in the, you know, the plains or whatever, those, those brush fires catch on fast and they move fast and they, they take out a lot, of, uh, a lot of brush, as it were. Uh, and and I'm, I'm talking about action and reaction. The action of the fire causing the reaction of, of, the, of the burning and all taking place. The same with water. Everybody boils water. At least I think most of us know how to boil water. But you put the water on a stove, you know, and you turn on the, the stove and you wait and then there's an action. You take the action and then comes the reaction. The water boiling, bubbling all over, you see. Why is this important? You know, they're pleading to God, Lord, you've got to come with an action and you need to make a reaction. The reaction is going to be their response to your presence, their response to your power. See, it says, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountain shook at your presence. Can I tell you that that not only happened at Sinai, but it has happened every time, every time the children of God needed God to come. He did. Read through the history of the children of Israel from Genesis on through the Old Testament. Time and again, the Lord made Himself known. Time and again, things took place. An action was taken by God, a reaction was made by the people. I think of the book of Judges. I mean, this this is one of the saddest books in the Bible, actually. But every time, you know, there was this cycle of the children of Israel, you know, going off and doing their own thing, but then they get into trouble. And then in the time of their trouble, they cry out to God, God would come and react and then, and then rescue them through a judge. And then they would call upon the Lord, then they'd seek Him for a little while, then they'd go back to their ways. The cycle went over and over and over, but each time God responded. Made Himself known. It says, when you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. Things we didn't even expect. You came down. And I think about those three words in the, in, in the very thought of the coming of Jesus Christ in flesh, in human flesh. 
and taking upon human flesh when he comes. We say, well, there wasn't much of an earthquake when Jesus came at that point in time, but there certainly was when he was on the cross. For we're told that the earth shook. There happened to be an earthquake at the point of the moment that Jesus died. So you see, they didn't expect him to come, but he came. He came in his most beautifully humble way. And yet, in that humility, there was power, there was authority, there was strength, there was wisdom. And more importantly, there was salvation to all who would believe. But you see, the secular godless nations needed to tremble before the Lord. This is what they were crying out to God to come down to do, to cause these nations to tremble at His presence much like they need to tremble before Him today and will tremble at His return. I think oftentimes we, 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 we tend to set aside the thought that God is going to come to judge nations. The Bible is very clear about that. End time prophecy is very clear about the very fact that God is going to come and judge nations. This is one reason why we need to keep praying for our nation. <clears throat> We've been one of the very few nations that have stood by Israel over the many years that it has been in existence as far as a modern nation is concerned. But even before that, it was one vote by the United States of America that gave Israel in the United Nations that status of, of independence. And from that very moment on, they've been fighting to stay alive. God has blessed our nation for that. But we have to be very careful if we move in any other direction besides that. And we're going to see that, that in just a moment. But you see, the remnant of Israel in the last days, there is going to be a remnant, and they are believing Israel. Very small remnant, but nonetheless a remnant in the last days, we'll call upon God to intervene as the nations gather together against Israel and against Jerusalem. I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 14. It's near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14. And I want you to look at verse 2. Now remember that the, the remnant is here, will be here, and, and the remnant will be seeing these things, just as there was a remnant of believing uh, uh, Israelites or believing Israel during the time of the, you know, before the Babylonian exile and all. Very small, but nonetheless, they began to see what was taking place. They were the ones who called out to God. But this is going to happen in the future. Zechariah 14 verse 2 says, For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's an ominous passage, isn't it? This is yet to come. This is yet to happen. The remnant we will see that ominous gathering and cry the cry of this passage here in Isaiah chapter 64. Will you not rend the heavens and come down? Will you not deal with these nations yourself and give the deliverance for which our hearts crave? We are desiring this deliverance. We see the nations gathering. This is why Joe Rosenberg calls the Middle East, in particular Jerusalem and Israel, the epicenter. The whole focus of the, of the world is in this very place. And you would wonder, why is it that we're paying so much attention to this little small strip of land called Israel? But for 60 years, for 60 years, every day they fight for their existence. And they are seeking peace. They are seeking peace among people that have no desire to have peace with them, but seek only to destroy them. And you begin to watch. You begin to watch the alliances that are being made today against Israel. 
You push out from the, the epicenter of, surrounding Israel, out a little further, all you have is enemies. And one of the greatest enemies is a little further out, that's Iran. And Ahmadinejad, who has already made it very clear that he wants to destroy Israel. He wants to get rid of it. That it shouldn't even exist. It shouldn't even be on the map. And they're trying to develop nuclear weapons for that purpose. The nations, by the way, will certainly be dealt with, as the prophet Zechariah records in verse 3, the next verse, it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And I tell you this, if God's going to go out and fight, I don't think he's going to lose. If God goes out to fight, I don't think he's going to suffer any, any casualties whatsoever. When God goes to fight for his people, he's going to win. If he doesn't, he isn't God. But we know that he is. Go back two chapters in Zechariah chapter 12. And again, you need to see this whole picture of what is being said about Jerusalem and why these nations are coming. Zechariah 12 verses 2 and 3 says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay, when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it will happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. That's today. It's a tremendously heavy burden for all nations today. If you keep up with all of the things that are being done and, and, and said in the United Nations, Israel has probably received more condemnations than any other nation in the world. All because they are trying to protect them, themselves and their people. And they retaliate if somebody comes against them. And they don't care what the United Nations really says. I don't care what the United Nations says. They're not out for the sake of peace for the world. When all they do is let dictators come up before the podium, you know, along with some good people, but a lot of times they have uh, you know, ruthless dictators, murderers and assassins and thieves come up and speak. Doesn't say much for them. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces. Heave it away. In other words, get rid of it. In other words, run it into the ocean. In other words, destroy it. In other words, nuke it. Do you get the picture here? Though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. That's what scares me in a sense. Though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. All nations. That includes ours. That's why we need to keep praying for the peace of Jerusalem and for mercy. God knows who's gathering. With that in mind, going back to our text in Isaiah 64, verse 3, it says, When, he, when, when you did awesome things for which we did not look, we, in other words, we didn't expect, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. God's work among us and among his people is not only powerful, but can also be a little terrifying as well. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that, that when the Red Sea was parted in Exodus 14, that the people walking down between the two walls of water were a lot more than thrilled. I'm sure that they were a lot more than, than excited. That, you know, it, it wasn't like SeaWorld. It wasn't like going through there and, and you know, having a guy take them through. Oh, by the way, this is, you know, and that's a... Can you imagine the, the terror, as it were, of seeing these two great walls of water on either side of them as they walk through the dry portion that God made for them. That's terrifying. 
I'd say they were terrified in a fearful sort of way. And I mean that in the sense of a fear of God sort of way. What does God have to do to get us to fear Him in the right way? To know that He is an awesome God. What does He have to do? I'm sure that when Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, when they offered strange fire before the Lord and were consumed by the fire that came from heaven, that the people were more than just frightened. More than frightened. You know, it's an interesting thing that these were the sons of Aaron. And you, as a father or, you know, as a parent, you know, watching your own sons be consumed by God. We're told when you read that in the text in Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron said nothing. Why is this thing he ever did? He said nothing. He could not. God had acted. How terrifying that must have been. They offered strange fire, probably because of their drunkenness. We're told a little later that the Lord made a very strong command against drunkenness. In the same chapter. I'm sure that the church, the early part of the church, when people were gathering together and bringing in what God had blessed them with so that they could bless others, and especially bless those who had nothing. And when a couple named Ananias and Sapphira came into the church, not together, they came separately, to offer an offering unto the Lord and to say this was the whole offering, yet they had kept back some. I mean, if all they had to do was be honest. But they lied to God and to the people. And Ananias fell as dead. And the others carried him out. And then came Sapphira, bearing the same story. I heard somebody say some, uh, something about uh, you know, her coming about three hours later. It took her that long to get her makeup on. Just kidding. Just kidding. I didn't say it. I heard somebody else say it. She finally made it to church. And they took her and buried her next to her husband that same day. Great fear fell upon the church. You see, we need to have a proper fear of God. We need to have a proper fear of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, he said, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And look at verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. A lot of people sometimes think, well, you know, I haven't seen anybody die in church because they lied to the Lord too often, so I guess maybe he's relaxed a little bit. I think the Lord would just have us to love Him, honor Him, praise Him, worship Him, reverence Him from our hearts rather than to have this constant fear over people, right? So that, you know, what comes out of us is genuine. I mean, he wants genuine believers. He wants genuine people that love him and serve him and and desire him in all things. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, yeah. (laughs) It's a fearful thing because we should fear the Lord with a right heart. 
Proverbs says the, beginning, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For us to begin to understand the wonders of God, we need to fear Him and, tr- and, 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 and truly just bow to His power. You know, have that reverence. I don't know that we respect God like we should respect Him. As a church, as a people, as individuals in the church. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Listen to this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably. Notice how. With reverence and godly fear. Everybody wants the grace part, but who wants to reverence the Lord with godly fear? I hope you do. I hope we do together. But notice verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Uh, verse 28 is, is, a, is a beautiful verse if you understand it from the standpoint of realizing that we have God's undeserved favor so that we might serve Him with reverence, awe, respect, and with godly fear. That every step we take is one that honors God. Every word that we speak will be something that will honor God. Every thought that we think, for God knows our thoughts, is something that will honor God. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. We get angry. We get upset. We say things that we shouldn't say. But if the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts, it convicts us of sin, and we go into our face and say, God, forgive me. Thanks for waking me up to this thought. I need to get right right now. If I need to go and ask somebody for forgiveness, I need to do that now. If I'm aware of something I've done. And we begin to live our life like Jesus taught us to live it. With genuine love. With genuine commitment. And yet God's work in the past also gives hope for the future. God's work in the past, oh, it's a fearful thing. It still gives us hope for the future. You see, if God can part the Red Sea, is He not able then to solve all of our problems? Is He not able to solve the problems that we bring Him? Of course He is. If He can part the Red Sea, man, He can work, us, you know, work out things for us. Not that He's going to do them for us and we just sit back and say, Oh, Lord, wonderful. It's like saying, Lord... I'm going to sit here, drink my tea, and you do the, and you do the lawn. Oh, God, give me the strength so I can do this lawn so it looks nice and, you know, I honor you with it. So you understand the idea here. God is able. And we need to be able servants of Him. Surrender to Him. You see, when we remember or read about the things that the Lord has done in recent revivals, even in church history, it moves us to pray this. It moves us, it moves us to say, Lord, we want to see you move today as you have in the past. I do that. I think of the days that I used to see God do great and mighty things in a different time, you know, generations ago. I don't know how long. But, you know, I could see God do some great things. I said, Lord, move like that again among us. Or we were so excited to go to church. We were so excited to open the Bible. We were so excited to see. We didn't have video screens with pretty scenes and words up there. Man, we learned the words right there on the spot. Most of the time we learned the words because they were in the Bible. We could open our Bibles. We only had one translation, King James. So everybody knew the songs. That's how we learned. But there was this desire to do that. You know, every, you know I guess it's, sometimes it's easy. You know, we get everything handed to us and... Then we get complacent. That's one of the problems I'm going to talk about here in just a moment. But God still wants to work in our lives today. Look at verse 4 of of Isaiah 64. Verse 4 says, "For, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. Did you see that last phrase? Who acts for the one who waits for him. God's desire is to work in our lives today. The Lord needed to come down because He alone had proven that He was the only true and living God and would be the one who would come to help those who waited for Him, who truly believed in Him, 
who truly believed in His promises, who truly obeyed His holy commands. These things God would do for them. He wanted to do it. Psalm 37, verse 7. You know, the, the, whole, the whole focus here in this verse is this statement, who acts for the one who waits for Him. Who acts for the one who waits for Him. Psalm 37, verse 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. I want you to notice it doesn't say wait on Him. It says wait for Him. Wait for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. He says wait patiently for Him. Wait for Him. Psalm 40, verse 1, same thing. I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, it's okay to wait on the Lord, but he says, wait for the Lord. We're waiting for him now. We're sitting here today knowing that he said, I'm coming for you. I'm coming. I'm coming again. Wait for him. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. And God acted, you see. God acts on those who wait for him. But you've got to wait. Isaiah 25, verse 9. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him. And He will save us. You wait for Him, He acts. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. We're waiting for the salvation of the Lord today. You know, we we have to understand something about God's salvation toward those who believe. We, we see it in all three tenses in the Scriptures. We have been saved, we are saved, or being saved, and we will be saved. We have been saved. When we came to know Christ, when we responded to the Lord, when we responded to the Holy Spirit coming alongside of us and, 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 and convicting us of, of sin and righteousness and, and judgment, when, it, when, when, when that happened and we received Christ, we were saved. Today we're being saved. Every day God has that part in, in saving us through this life that we're living in. And then we will be saved. We will be delivered from this existence here, if you want to call it that. But we'll be delivered from this life into eternity. That is the way God's salvation is working. And so here it says, we have waited for Him. We'll be glad we rejoice in His salvation. We're waiting for the Lord. You see, this is why it's important for believers in Jesus Christ to be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. To be looking for the day of Jesus Christ. I spoke this weekend when, in the baccalaureate service, and all the services, but you know, I mentioned this thing about a phrase in the Scriptures, the day of Christ as opposed to the day of the Lord. Two different things. The day of Christ is what the church is waiting for. We're waiting for Jesus to come. I'm not looking for Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. I'm waiting for Christ. We need to look for the day of Christ. That's the day that He comes for us. But there's another day, the day of the Lord. That's not a one-day thing. That's an extension, uh, extended period, I should say. And it's not a good time. It's a time of judgment. The day of the Lord is a time of... Uh, well, we can measure it seven years. Seven years of tribulation. The world is going to go through. Israel will be going through that particular tribulation for its own uh, finishing off the, the 490 years that they were supposed to be judged for their disobedience to God. So we are to wait for the Lord. You know, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul actually gives us a loose translation of this text, verse 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. He says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known this mystery. But as it is written, and here he quotes this verse, or from this verse loosely. As a matter of fact, he's really quoting from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, 
nor have entered into the heart of men the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Do you see an equation, you know, uh, an equating here of, of waiting for Him and loving Him? You know, if we if, if we don't love the Lord, we, we're not waiting for Him. If we're not waiting for Him, we don't really love Him. That's a strong statement, I know. But I don't mind making it because I believe that's what that's what Paul's saying here. If we're not waiting for the Lord, we don't love Him. Think about it. What are we waiting for? We waiting for that uh, check from the government? That's that's all that matters. We wait. I know what we're waiting for. We're waiting for that lotto thing. Tuesdays and Saturdays, or whatever days it is. Wednesdays and Fridays, whatever. I don't know. We waiting for that? Waiting for my number? Waiting for my ticket to come? What are we waiting for? I'm waiting for the Lord. And we've got to be vigilant about it. And it matters how we live our lives, folks. It matters how we live our lives because it lets people know that we, we either love Christ or we don't. We're either waiting for him or we don't, or we're not waiting for him. But verse 10 is really the, the distinction between what Isaiah was, 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 was giving forth as, as that prayer on behalf of Israel and what Paul is saying. Because in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 2, he says, But God has revealed them to us, the mysteries. God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. He's revealed them to us through His Spirit. We know now the mysteries. We've got the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. Isaiah had limited vision in this particular area. See, while some people think of these verses as referring to heaven, because some are saying, well, see, there's something waiting for us. It is, in fact, referring to all kinds of things that the Lord has prepared for those who love Him and are waiting for Him. In fact, one of those mysteries of God was the cross. The added revelation has been given, which, which had been reserved for a future day. But Isaiah really knew nothing of it other than the fact that he's, he's pleading for, you know, on behalf of the people. But it's been revealed to us by God's Spirit. And the cross is at the very center of that revelation. That's why it says, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What comes from Jesus going to the cross... is what sets us free. Is what has changed our lives. It it is what gives us now the reason to be waiting for Him. You see, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5, verses 6-10, through Paul says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God, and look at verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. You see, we know who the Messiah is. We know who Messiah is. And we will be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. How interesting that Paul would use that verse of Isaiah 64 to point out that what wasn't revealed then is revealed to us now. What Christ came to do for us. And then there's a special blessing connected with waiting for the Lord. Special blessing. Too many men and women in the church today would rather be working than waiting. Now, there's nothing wrong with working. 
We all should do our part in this church. We're all called to be servants. So it isn't a matter of sitting back and letting others do things. But, but I want you to get the idea, the understanding of what I mean by the difference between working and waiting here. And that there are many people in the, in the church today who would rather be working than waiting on the Lord. Working than waiting. Let, let me explain. Uh, how many of you would rather be Mary than Martha? You see, there was a day when Jesus came to Bethany to visit his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And, and so Martha was busy in the kitchen, just working and cooking and you know, doing all kinds of things. And where was Mary? Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, waiting on the Lord. One was working, the other was waiting. Martha got upset, came out and said, Jesus, look at you. Look at this sister of mine. I've been slaving, sweating, uh, you know, and there she's sitting. And Jesus just simply says, Mary has chosen the better part. Doesn't mean that Mary doesn't do anything. But she has chosen the better part to sit at the feet of her Savior and wait upon him. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson wrote a statement that I, I write in my Bible to remind me of something. He said, man loves legalism. Listen carefully. Man loves legalism because it provides the flesh with an opportunity to look good. Man loves legalism because it provides the flesh with an opportunity to look good. A lot of people today in legalistic situations, legalistic churches, legalistic backgrounds, you know, where everything has to be done you know, a certain way. They, you know, you've got to dress the same, dress alike. And then when people start dressing alike, then one has to dress so just a little bit better. Just a little bit better because I'm a little bit better than you are, you know. Now, this is an interesting thing. When you go to Israel, you see this amongst the different sects of Judaism. There are people who wear these long black robes, they wear these funny hats, black hats, but underneath their black hats they've got a yarmulke or a, a kippah. And they've got the little black thing. And some of them wear a white one because they're better than the other group, you see. Others tuck their pants into their, their socks to be different than the others who don't tuck their pants into their socks. I can't understand it, you know. Except for this one thing. They're working and not waiting. But we can fall into the same tra- trap in the church because we want people to see us doing stuff so they, they might think we're pretty good and pretty close to the Lord. A lot closer than we who are just sitting there waiting for Him. <laughs> and doing what God's called us to do. Loving people, serving people. Doing it when people aren't watching. Because why? Because we're not out for the glory. The glory goes to God. So let's not be like those in the church who think that waiting for the Lord is, is foolish dreaming. There are those people who say, well, why are you waiting for the Lord? You know, things are going to work out. You know, the Lord's already come. Things are, you know, that's all, you know, metaphoric. <laughs> no, the Lord said, I'm coming again. You're going to see me. My feet are going to land on, on, on the, you know, the, the Mount of Olives. I mean, you just go back, read the Zechariah passage, chapter 14. You'll see that. Jesus is coming. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I prepare the place, I'm going to come back. I'm going to get you and gather you, take you home. It's not metaphoric. That's re- reality. That's what we wait for. It's not foolish dreaming. Listen to the words of Paul to Timothy as Paul is now departing from this life and he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, he says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, my life is going to be spent now, very shortly, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And it's interesting that it's put in the past tense. But it's not that weird. I'll tell you why. Because if we love the Lord, we're waiting for him. We're lo- we, we've loved his appearing. Right now we're loving his appearing. We've loved it because he... We, because we trust that He's going to do what He says. 
We loved His appearing the first time because He came to save us from our sins. We're going to love His appearing the next time we come. He comes for the church because we're going to go home with Him. So we've loved His appearing. And I love what 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says. The Apostle John says, And now little children, abide in Him. Rest in Him. Wait for Him. Abide in Him that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Abide in Christ now. Because He's coming again. And so, the remnant continues, and we need to continue because of time, but the remnant continues in its prayer. But now take the, it, it takes the position of confession and of self-judgment and repentance before God. Let's go on in verse 5 now of Isaiah 64. It says, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. This is part of the last part of verse of chapter... Uh, I'm sorry. The last part of verse 4 now is in verse 5. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. But notice the change here. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. Stop there for just a moment before we go on. There's something about confessing. There's something about that confession that we make before the Lord. There's something about that repentance that's, that, you know, that, that comes from the heart that says, I am confessing the fact that we have sinned. I have sinned. And there's something else that we need to understand should be part of that. I need to be saved. We need to be saved. We have sinned. That says, I have come to the realization that my sin will separate me from, for an eternity from, from God. That's why I don't believe in easy believism. That's why I don't believe that, you know, just if you can just get somebody to pray without, without their heart really understanding what repentance is. What it means to, get, you know, to be sorry over the sins that you've committed against a, an awesome God, a holy God, a righteous God. It isn't just a prayer. It's the heart given to God that says, I know that I have been a sinner. I am a sinner. And I need to be saved. This is a powerful statement about how we are to come to Christ. But notice verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. You know, that just fits with Scripture. The Bible says none are righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So here it says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness says. Righteousness says. You know, that's plural of righteousness. It's not just a single righteousness. It is our righteousness says. All our good acts, all our good deeds that we try to build up in our lives to try to outweigh the bad in our lives, which we all have. But we have, you know, my bad is a lot less than yours, okay? Right? Only God knows that, but I'm not going to confess tonight. But, <laughs> but we build all of these righteousnesses, right? And he says, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. Well, that's a sad thought. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. What was the reason that God wasn't working wonders any longer among the people at that time? They had as a nation, you see, sinned against their God and now must confess their sins and turn from them. So they were like an unclean thing. Now we know that according to Jewish law, a person who was ceremonially unclean could not go up to the house of the Lord. He could not offer sacrifice. God could except nothing from his hands. In essence, he was an outcast as long as he remained unclean. This is why in, in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5, it says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Look at verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Folks, for the longest time, the Jewish people just thought, if we just clean our hands, that's all that matters. 
And Jesus made it clear to them. You wash your cups and everything but your heart. It's a whitewashed sepulchre, a whitewashed tomb. Do all the outward, but the inside is totally dead. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. The pure heart extends through those hands. The hands that can offer sacrifice. The sacrifice of the broken heart before God. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Righteousness is not what we build up to try to get right with God or to try to make God like us. It is what God gives us when we die to ourselves and let Christ live in us. But even all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Literally, folks, that's a menstrual cloth which made women unclean, by the way. And their loss of that flow of blood coming out of the woman. And they had to go through a certain type of cleansing. But that cloth was a filthy thing. Reminder of sin. And there was then that sense, as, as, as time went on, there was that sense of worthlessness before God. But the good that we attempt to do, you see, The good that we attempt to do is unacceptable before the Lord. Filthy rag was unacceptable before the Lord. What we attempt to do before the Lord is as a filthy rag. I think that sometimes man has this idea that in our own strength, we have a lot to offer God. That in our own wisdom and intellect, we have a lot to offer God. But eventually we find out that it all amounts to nothing in the sight of God. It amounts to nothing. Let me give you an example. It's like the best Monopoly player. How many of you like Monopoly? Okay. It's like the best Monopoly player. You probably think you're the best Monopoly players. Well, we'll we'll have to find out one day. It's like the best Monopoly player in the whole world. And you play with him finally. And he totally cleans you out of all your play money that you use. Because, you know, most of the time you use that play money. You know, the yellow, the green, the red, the blue, you know, monies that you get credits, the monopoly credits and all of that. And and, and so he cleans you out of all of that. And and then you know what he does? You give him that, the play money. And you say, it's yours, man. Do with what you like. And he takes that play money and he goes to Walmart. And he gets a big cart, you know, and he goes around. He gets about, you know, $1,000 worth of stuff, $2,000 worth of stuff. And he goes up to the counter and he takes that play money. And what are they going to tell him? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Why? It's not going to do you any good. You've done all this great playing of this game, but you have nothing to show for it. Our best efforts are worthless up against the reality of heaven, up against the reality of Christ and His sacrifice for us. If our righteousness, and by the way, folks, if our righteousness is filthy, what must our sins look like in the sight of God? You ever thought about that? If our righteousness is filthy, what does our sin look like to God? And then the prayer is, we all fade as a leaf. Our sinful condition has made us weak and unstable. And then he says, our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. In and of ourselves we have no power to stand against temptations as long as our sins carry us like the wind. And then he says in verse 7, And there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. No one who stirred up in the heart to take hold of God, to take hold of the promises, to take hold of the strength and the power that God gives. If we just take hold of Him. He says, for you've hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. I mean, this is a description of an unclean, unstable heart that doesn't seek the Lord the way it should, but rather is lazy and even complacent before God. 
The reality is that God isn't the one who is hiding. He says, you've hidden your face from us. He's covered his face. His presence. The face. When you ever see the word presence in the Old Testament, literally means his face. He's covered his presence, his face, because of man's sin. Do you remember the cry of Jesus? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Wasn't that the father no longer loved his son? But he bore the sins of the world. Isaiah 1 verse 15 says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. That was at the very beginning of our study. I don't remember how many years ago it was. Here we are, 63 chapters later. And the same problem arises. Fellowship is broken and or damaged, and our sin demands God's righteous judgment. There's no one to blame but themselves. It's amazing how many people want to blame God for everything. Or they want to blame others. Or they want to blame their, you know, their upbringing. Or they want to blame their parents. Or they want to blame somebody. But there was no one to blame but themselves. But now comes that plea for mercy. In verses 8 and 9 it says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. You know, that statement is made... Uh, concerning Father in the last chapter as well. You are our Father. We're the clay. And you're, you are potter. And all we are the work of your hand. You made us. You formed us. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor no remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We're all your people. The reminder, the flags go up, Lord. Hey, you made us to be yours. Remember? Do you remember, Lord? You didn't choose us because we were this or that. You chose us because you loved us. Remember? We're your people. So now Israel was... To be as obedient children to a forgiving father because that's what father is. The story that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke of the prodigal son who has a forgiving father. It's a picture of the father that we run to, confess our sins to. And so Israel was to be this obedient, these obedient children to a forgiving father and as submissive as clay in the hands of a patient potter. Willing to let God do whatever He wants in their lives. A patient potter. Has anybody here ever done a little bit of pottery at all? Okay. So you've got to be patient, right? I mean, you just have to be patient. <laughs> Can't be like somebody. Eh, I don't like that. I don't like that. Get another hobby. It takes time to learn. It takes time to form. It takes time. And if, if something's a little bit off, you know what? You can work it again. But you work it until you have what you're making. You know. And you set it on the table and it doesn't look like this. You know. So think about it. Willing to let God do whatever He wants in their lives. So it is to be with us. I want you to consider Jeremiah 18, verse 6. Jeremiah 18, verse 6 says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you 
as this potter, says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The Lord says, let me form you. Let me make you. Because when we let God do that, wouldn't it become more precious to be what God wants us to be? That what we're trying to force God to make us be or let us be? You see, He can cleanse us and make us anew if, if we will let Him have His way with us. And while the Lord has the right to be furious with us for a time, we do well to remember His great mercies and His promises toward us and His willingness to hear us when we call upon Him. Psalm 25 verse 11 says, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. You know what the, the, the mindset of so many people going to God today for con, in, in confession of sin is? Lord, you know, forgive me. Yeah, it's not a big deal, Lord. I mean, but I did, you know, a lot of people do. So, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But, well, I feel like I need to come and tell you about it. And we try to argue with God as to the greatness of our sin. Any sin, folks, is great before a God who is holy, holy, holy. And what David said was right, my, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. We're not to bargain with God. My sin's not so bad. Some of you might remember the penance you used to have to, you know, ex, you know was extracted from you. If it wasn't such a bad sin, you might not get so many little prayers to pray. If you were really bad, I eh, didn't have much to do that afternoon. Then you could sit there and pray for all afternoon long. A little bigger sin. Folks, any sin is great before God. Proverbs 28:13 says, "He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy." Confesses and forsakes The forsaking is the important thing. Forsake it. Repent. Turn the other way. Go away from it. Get away from it. Run. You see. Today we said, oops, sorry, Lord. Oops, sorry, Lord. Oops. Oops. Oh, but I'm so thankful you're a forgiving God. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Oops. How many times are we going to say oops? We're not, for, we're not forsaking. The last pleading in verse 9, by the way, is, is for mercy on the simple grounds that they are His people. <laughs> Lord, we are Yours. Yes, we have sinned. Yes, we deserve judgment. But we're still Yours, Lord. And, and, and so You're stuck with us. <laughs> you're stuck with us. We're Your people. You're stuck with us. And lastly, they ask God to remember Zion's condition. And they ask Him to act on their behalf. Verses 10-12. through 12. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? You see, they desire for God to look closely at the terrible conditions of His holy cities and draw attention to what they called our holy and beautiful temple and its condition, its state. Which, which prompts the question, why are you silent, Lord? That's essentially what they're asking. Why are you silent, Lord? And it all points back to their sinful condition. Lord, please show mercy. Will you always give us what we deserve? Please show mercy. So here's the dilemma. Here's the dilemma. Because of their sin, they were in desperate need of the Lord's salvation. But the Lord only answers the prayers of a righteous person. And a righteous person wouldn't be in the place where they were. So the answer would be found then for them in the new covenant that he would make with his people. Something that we need to end here at this point, but it's what Jesus said in John 14, verses 13 and 14, and I'll close with this. 
Because, we, you know, this continues on into chapter 65, so we'll pick up here for next time. But, but Jesus said this, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There's a new covenant that he's going to put into their hearts and into their minds. So they have to repent. They have to come to the Lord and and plead for that mercy which God wants to give them because they're his people. So the last statement I want to make to you all tonight is this. Only a great God can pardon great iniquity. Only a great God can pardon great sin. The people have confessed that sin. They've confessed it. And now will they forsake it? If we look at this as being future, yet to come, that is the hope of Israel. That is the hope for God's people. Let's pray.